You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. I've lived in cities my whole life. First, a sprawling regional capital in southwest Russia, then New York, Kigali, Geneva, and now London. I really couldn't think of a better place to live than a major metropolis, certainly not in my 20s. The culture, the diversity, the hustle and bustle of cities move me like nothing else. Still, I harbor no illusions. Cities all over the world come with their unique sets of challenges. Gang violence is one such challenge. My guest today is intimately familiar with this issue. Jira Oya is an activist filmmaker and social entrepreneur from London, United Kingdom, who left the criminal world over a decade ago. Through the 2020 Change Foundation, an organization that he co-founded in 2013, Jiro now helps other young people to make the transition from the streets to becoming community, business, and political leaders of tomorrow. Gang violence is something that, you know, it's been going on for a number of years and no one, no no active government have been able to pinpoint the root causes of the issue or even deal with the root causes of the issue. And what we've seen over the years is that it's getting a lot worse. The victims and perpetrators are getting a lot younger and no initiative, no kind of campaign that the government spearheads is working or, or achieving any kind of effective results. So it's kind of down to organisations like ours in individuals like myself to kind of take it upon ourselves because we'd lived that kind of life and we know what it takes to be able to come out from it and what individuals that are in it need to be able to come out. Jure was born in Nigeria, but when he was just five years old, he moved to London to live with his sister. From there, it was a steep learning curve for him. I moved to London and I stayed with my sister and she had two kids. The oldest was four years younger than me and then at the time when I moved, she recently just had a baby. She was a single parent and I had to grow up very, very fast. From Nigeria, I was the youngest, so I was pretty much spoiled. I got whatever I wanted, moved to London and everything changed. So it was quite hard to adapt and get used to that life, but I had to. We lived in Broadwater Farm, North London, one of the worst council estates in London. And, you know, as I grew up, I just kept looking around thinking, this this can't be my life. There has to be more to life than this. And similar to, you know, the young people that we work with, I looked around and I thought the fastest and easiest way for me to get out from this situation is to do what I saw others doing. So obviously I saw my sister, she would work multiple jobs, yet the money was still never enough to stretch. So I thought, you know what, as I, as I got older, I needed to start doing my own things. I saw a few people that, you know, were pretty good at what they were doing. So I used to just hang around them and just take things in. I've always been very observant and my ears have always been very good. Like I could listen to five conversations at the same time. So I picked things up very, very quickly. Yeah, I just got involved in what the older guys were doing to make money. And then I then started passing that knowledge down to my peers, grew a network from there. I started being on the roads, as they say, in year nine. I was probably about 13 when I started making my own money. And yeah, I didn't stop until university. So that was like a long span of time. And within that time, I grew from the lowest person in the food chain to building my own empire. Looking back, thinking, wow, like I'm here, but it's not all that it's cracked up to be. You know, I have money, but I can't use it in the way that I would like to. Um, so many different things in which where it wasn't 
everything that I thought it would be. I thought, you know, with the money comes the happiness, the freedom and all of these kind of things. But because of the way I made my money, I couldn't be free with it, you know. So it just wasn't a life that um, I thought was worthy of me. So in the same way that I looked around when I was younger and I said that I can't, I can't be here. There has to be more. By the time I got to the top of the food chain, I thought the same thing. Like, this can't be life. Can't be constantly looking over my shoulder and all of these kind of things and not trusting anybody. And I thought to myself, like, I've got a powerful mind, I'm very creative. And that's why I've got pretty far in what I used to do on the roads. <clears throat> so I thought to myself, I'm going to challenge myself to see whether this, this mind of mine can actually, you know, do it. Jerry decided to finish university, stop everything he was doing and start his life from scratch, away from the roads. His personal resolve was strong, but his faith also played a fundamental role in his transition. And it was at that same time that I decided to take my Christian walk seriously as well, because I challenged not just myself, but I challenged God. If you're real, you know, prove it to me. You know, let me be able to leave everything that I've done behind unscathed and really just use me in the, say that you, in, in the way that you said you wanted to. I'm giving myself to you, you know, no baggage, no nothing. Just me, mold me into what you want me to be. Whereas before, I felt like I built myself this pedal stool and I climbed my way to the top of the pedal stool and nobody could talk to me. You know, I felt like, you know, I did this and... Nobody can't talk to me. Everything was about money. Everything was about, oh, like, what's your bank balance? Like, what makes you feel like you can have a conversation with me? That kind of thing. It was terrible. So I moved back to London on Monday. I saw one of my brother's friends. He invited me to church on the Wednesday. And that was, <laughs> I remember the date. It was the 15th of August, 2006. And I haven't turned back since. Jura's story is not uncommon, particularly in the more disadvantaged urban communities. In the absence of legitimate economic opportunities, young people often begin to see gangs as the only way to prosperity, as a way out. Over the years, many campaigns run by the mayor's office and the Metropolitan Police have tried to tackle gang activity in its many forms. But success remains elusive for these efforts. Jura believes it is because these campaigns fail to address the root causes that push young people to join gangs. Gang violence is something that until the government and individuals, even youth organizations, start dealing with the root causes, it's not going to go away. There are several causes as to why individuals get involved in gangs, why they stay in gangs, but we've pinpointed one of the major ones, which is the mindset of the individual, their way of thinking. We know that if we can change their way of thinking, then teach them how to value another person's life, teach them how to value or see value in their own life, it will be very difficult for them to continue or think it was normal to take another person's life. Why do you think the government struggles to see or to address these root causes? They don't understand. Mm. They don't understand them because, and, and I get it. If you're a member of parliament, you, you know you don't know what it's like to live and grow up in the inner city. You know you might have people come and tell you about their experiences, but you don't know for yourself. So you can't really put yourself in that individual's shoes. You, you can't explain to someone that's in government why a young person would want to go out to the countryside and sell drugs as opposed to go to school and go out and get a job. Because to them, it just doesn't make sense. If you think about the young person, if they've grown up in and around that kind of environment that's their norm they don't know anything else based on the ex examples the experiences around them the only people that they see making any kind of 
sustainable life or living a sustainable lifestyle are the drug dealers and the fraudsters and the gangbangers. So they think that that's the only thing that they can do. If they look at their parents, their parents are pretty much, majority of them come from single parent homes where their mum or their dad is working multiple jobs just to keep the lights on and everything going and they think to themselves, I don't want to be like you. And then they see the drug dealer in a flesh car, wads of money in his pocket and they think, yeah, I'd rather be like him. Not knowing that that drug dealer, he's dying on the inside and the wad of cash that he has in his pocket is his life savings. The car that he's driving is a rental. So it's not it's not real. So they use these things to kind of entice the young person. But we know that if that young person can have a strong mindset from the get-go, he can resist, you know, the temptation that the drug dealer is flaunting in his face and he can know that none of what you have is real. Juro believes that it is through education, and what his organization refers to as mindset adjustment work, that young people can be both deterred from joining gangs and helped to leave the streets for a healthier, more fulfilling life. That belief underpins the work of his organization, the 2020 Change Foundation. Back in 2012, Juro got to know six young men who were trying to rebuild their lives after leaving rivaling gangs in Peckham and Brixton, two neighborhoods in South London. Juro soon realized that like many people in their circumstances, these young men lacked the support network and the role models necessary to successfully turn their lives around. Having gone through this himself a few years earlier, Juro offered his support to the young men while filming a documentary about their journeys. I got to know the guys um, from a panel discussion I held on a TV program. I got to hear about their journey and the fact that, you know, they decided to turn their backs on a life of crime and try to pursue more uh, more positive and constructive future. But they found it quite challenging. And because I had a similar past to them and I was able to transition, but I never really had anybody to help me per se, apart from, you know, my church family and, and my pastors. And I started to think, okay, so not everybody's going to take the road that I took. Not everybody's just going to walk into a church and decide to turn their lives around. So what about individuals that want to make that transition, but they don't have anybody? So I thought to myself, let me use my experience to help others as well. I, I, at first, I never really saw it becoming an organization. I never really saw it growing into what it is today. It was just something that I felt like I wanted to do because I saw that there was a need. And I thought, you know, I, I can meet this need, even if it is just these six guys. So during the, the course of making the film, um, I was personally mentoring them one-on-one, helping them, you know, map out a plan for their life and teach them how to take the next steps, introducing them to people, expanding their networks and so on. And then, um, yeah, like after that, I just thought, well, why stop here? You know, I don't think that there's anything like this out there at the moment. And I don't think there's people like myself that can engage with what people like to call or individuals that people like to call hard to reach um, because these are like high-end gang members. Um, so I thought, yeah, why not? Like, you know, it's worked really well. Um, how many more of these guys are actually out there? And, and the more you get to know the individuals that are labeled, you know, dangerous offenders or gang members or whatever, you start to realize that they're just normal human beings. And just because they've committed a crime doesn't mean that they're monsters. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. In fact, as I look back on my life and I think I've had more than one second chance, so why shouldn't other people have multiple chances? The flagship program run by the 2020 Change Foundation is called Goldmine. The program follows a six-week curriculum that teaches young people to establish a positive mental attitude, understand how to turn their thoughts into action, redefine and measure success, and critically engage with the idea of happiness. The program also helps participants to gain confidence in their abilities, become more comfortable in their own skin, and take responsibility for their actions. 
majority of drug dealers are rebels. They don't want to study. They don't want to do what they need to do to advance. They, they are afraid of conforming and they are used to making their money in a particular way. Anything that challenges that, they're looking, they're, they're definitely going to fight against it. So I would always say it's down to showing that same drug dealer, not only the pros and cons of what, it, what he's doing, but the fact that if you do things in this particular way, you stand to make a lot more money and it doesn't have, it doesn't come with the headache of you being a drug dealer. And that's why our program is so effective. We're able to show these candidates a new picture and show them, look, all the skills that you acquired from selling drugs on the street, you were able to make it this this far, this high up the chain. You can use those skills as transferable skills to either start up a business. All it is, is you're, all you're doing is you're just changing your product, you know, and they think it's so difficult, but it's a lot harder selling drugs than it is to run a business. You know, there's so, there's so many, there's so much more risk in the drugs, not just from the police, but then you've got rival gang members, you've got people that will rob you. And then when we start showing them these different scenarios, they're able to realise, okay, I can actually do this. When we strip away all the business jargon and, and teach them in a language that they understand, they're able to realise, I've been doing this for the past four years, five years. I understand business model. I understand supply and demand. <laughs> I understand marketing. I understand all of these things. If you hear them talk about how they build up a drug line, it's the same way you build up a clientele for any particular business. So why are you not doing that? No one's ever showed them that. And the work ethic is there. I mean, I was, I was with someone yesterday that has recently come off the roads. Um, he's been off two years and he said that one day he actually just thought about it and he was speaking to some of these guys. He's like, if your phone rings at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you have to get up, answer that phone call, go out, sell the drugs, come back. If you sleep and your phone rings again an hour later, you have to get up. So ideally you're working 24 hours. If you work 24 hours in retail and at that level, you probably get £500 a week. If you're working 24 hours in retail, you're making way more than that. The energy that you're putting in, it's not worth the amount that you're making. It really isn't. And another thing you have to understand about the mentality of people that get into drugs from early is the fact that they think every person, every individual that works makes £1,200 a month because that's what they used to see. When I started telling them that you get people that make that in a day, you can find someone that makes £1,200 in a week. They're like, what? They're not aware of these jobs. They just think everybody that's working is working a dead-end job and making £1,200 a month. <laughs> but there's so much more. So when you start educating them in these things, they're like, okay, I'm open to this. They start realising that they already have skills and they don't necessarily have to go all the way back to school, but they can use their life experience as experience for jobs. And it, it builds their confidence to let them know that actually, instead of trying to run away from your past and hide your past, you use it to your advantage. The results that Dura and his team have achieved since the launch of the program are truly remarkable. In four years, they have worked with over 500 people aged between 16 and 30. 90% of goldmine participants graduate from the program, with more than a half moving into full-time employment, a third pursuing higher education, and others becoming entrepreneurs and setting up their own businesses. Juru has been able to achieve all this and grow 2020 change while also being a filmmaker and a producer, working for an employability charity and regularly attending church. Being the time management nerd that I am, I wanted to know how he manages to juggle all these commitments. But Jira corrected me right away. For him, it's not about juggling. It's all about balance. It was very, very, very difficult at first. Obviously, I started off with one thing at a time. You know, I spent an extensive amount of time on 2020 to get it to where it is, to a point where I can kind of take a step back and utilize that time to do other things. And that was not until like last year. And then it's just about time management and being able to manage your time effectively. So 
my time is very compartmentalized. I try and balance things out. If I'm at work, I'm at work. I'm not trying to do work and this and that and that. I don't have time for things that are not relevant to what I've been called to do. People are like, oh, but you're always busy. But my thing is, you always make time for things and the people that you care about. So if, if it's something or someone that I genuinely care about, I'll, I'll make the time for it. You were still in your 20s when you founded the 2020 Change Foundation. So can you talk me through what that was like? Right, so I was, in, I was in business before. Like my first business, official business, was straight out of uni. So I was 21. So before this, I also set up my um, film production company. So I kind of knew from there. And obviously based on what I used to do before, I had knowledge of how to do certain things. But then it looked at a point where I had to transition that knowledge into doing things properly. So that's why I, I strongly believe in having the right network around you. So I got a solicitor friend of mine to help me. I got people to introduce me to people. I just asked a lot of questions and got, you know, sound advice from people around me, people that I knew had done things similar. We registered as a CIC. That's a community interest company for then initiated. We had to then re-register because we registered originally limited by shares. And in order for us to do the work that we do and even apply for grants and funds and whatnot, we have to be limited by guarantee. So initially... Our business model was more so just partnering with different organizations that already have funding and delivering our part of their overall vision. So um, we just use that to build our capacity and just sustain ourselves for the time being. But moving forward, one of the things that we're now looking at doing is changing our business model, making it 70% income-based and 30% grant-funded. The 70% will be us actively going out and seeking business from major corporates so obviously i don't know if you know but in the uk there's now the apprenticeship levy so looking at various companies that we can approach and deliver their apprenticeship program incorporating our goldmine program in there so that's one aspect of it and then there's also the recruitment aspect of it as well because over the years we've been able to supply major corporates with top quality candidates that they wouldn't ordinarily have been able to find themselves so helping them in terms of like their recruitment as well that's another revenue stream and also schools as well helping schools delivering confidence building workshops preparing young people for the real world so that's our business model in terms of like 70 30 moving things forward generating income for ourselves and then still having the grant funding what would you say has been the hardest part of running a social enterprise? The hardest part, I'd say, would be time. Because I know when I was able to dedicate 100% of my time to it, it was able to move forward a lot faster. And sustainable income, getting to a point where we're able to get sustainable income from it, that's that's been one of the challenging and hardest parts of running the organisation. Because if we're able to, for example, if I was able to draw an annual salary from it, then everything would be very, very different. But in order for us to be able to get there, it would have needed to take the time that it that it's taken. Because what we're doing is quite different, it's quite unique. Um, we were told originally that, you know, it's quite risky. So we had to take it upon ourselves to prove <laughs> everybody wrong. You know, and I feel like it's only now that we're at a stage where people are now actually starting to see the, the, the results and now we can then scale it up. So it needed to take the time that it's taken for us to get to where we are. And what's your favorite part? <laughs> oh, my favorite part is just seeing the change in the guys. They make it all worthwhile. You know, just seeing several light bulb moments during the sessions, you know, when you can see it in their face that this is actually making sense, that they're my favourite moments. And then seeing them progress as well, you know, when I pick up the newspaper and I see one of our candidates on the front page for, you know, positive stories, maybe they set up their business or they had a meeting with the prime minister or, 
those kind of things for me, they make it all worthwhile. In the Goldmine program, you teach your students about success and happiness, how to measure them and how they differ. So I was wondering if you could tell me what those two things mean for you. It's quite simple. We've got um, a, a definition of success that we got from our mentor, um, Pastor Chris, which is success is influencing the world and the people around you with the investment of your personality. And that's just it. That's success to us. That's success to me. And by the end of the program, that's success to each and every single individual that comes through our program as well, because that can be measured at different levels. And you don't need all the money in the world to be able to do that. So you start seeing success from a different light, as opposed to what society and what the world has told them that success is. So do you consider yourself successful? Every day of my life. Absolutely. And you said happiness. What is happiness? Happiness, happiness is a choice. You know, I don't see it. I don't define happiness as an emotion. I don't define it as a feeling. I choose to be happy in every single situation that I am faced with, or every situation that I'm in, because I believe that it's it's all working together for my good. You know, I wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't building me up for the person that I'm going to be tomorrow. So if I'm faced with a particular challenge, it's not so much a challenge, but it's an opportunity for improvement. So I see it as I can be happy through it. I might not enjoy it, but I'm happy because I'm looking at the end result and the person that I'm going to be on the other side of this particular challenge. So I can actually be happy in every single situation that I'm faced with. What advice would you give to your younger self, say, 10 years ago? So I just tell myself to keep going, you know, keep your eye on the prize understand why you're doing what you're doing you know refuse to be distracted and know that people will come along and join you on your journey because at that time it was it was literally just me i just kept pushing and it was difficult and it was hard um no people talk about you know they thought about giving up that that was never my story because i saw the end picture i knew i knew where where i was going but i just wasn't sure how to get there so i just kept pushing and and kept pushing so i'll just remind myself of that end picture and continue going you know when we first started out it was kind of like okay cool we're doing this we need to get into parliament we need to get into speak to politicians we need to get them to do this get them to do that all it is is they'll sit you down they'll listen to what you have to say they'll pick what they want from it and then use it to to, to raise an argument in the house of parliament and then after that nothing happens so it's just a load of talk 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 and more talk there are a number of things that they can do differently i mean they they, they put money into projects that are not going to do anything just tick box exercises just to make it look like they're doing something but then when you really analyze the impact of the projects that they're putting out there or campaigns that they're running compared to how much they're putting into it and the results that they're getting it's a waste of taxpayers money if you ask me and there are alternative methods in which you can affect positive change without spending too much money there are Several organizations like ours that are doing amazing work, but we're small. Even though we're growing, we can only do so much at this present moment in time. So things need to change. If we want to see a drastic change on a larger scale, they need to kind of get involved in what we're doing and see the results that we're getting with the little that we have. 
you know, imagine if we were able to do what we do on a large scale. Imagine if we were able to incorporate our program into the national curriculum. You know, even if it just started in 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 in, in the most difficult areas and the most um, challenging schools, that's that's a way forward. We can start educating these young kids before these gang members start getting them. There are several organisations out there, but I think there are different things that each organisation can tackle. No one organisation can do it all. But if everyone kind of understands what it is that they do and they do well and they stick to it and there's a lot more cohesive working, so people, different organisations working together cohesively, understanding that, you know, they're good at that, we're good at this and we can collaborate with them to ensure that we can reach more people, then maybe we can then get to the bottom of it. for listening to Meaningful and to Jiro for speaking with me. If you want to learn more about the issue of gang violence and the work that 2020 Change Foundation does in London, head over to Sophia Does Words. That's S-O-F-Y-A doeswords.com slash meaningful. If you liked today's episode, please give it a rating on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to subscribe to get each new episode straight to your device. Next week, I'm speaking to Emma Holton, a revenge porn survivor, feminist, activist, and an all-around amazing human. Trust me, you don't want to miss it.